You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, back in the uh, 1960s, there was a uh, Presbyterian pastor who developed a method of sharing the gospel, an evangelistic method. And um, the way his method would begin in a conversation was you would ask the other person two diagnostic questions. The first question was, if you were to die tonight, if you were to die sometime today, how certain are you that you would go to heaven, that you would spend eternity with God, that you would have eternal life in his kingdom? The second question was, if God were to ask you, why? Like, why should I let you enter my kingdom? Why should I let you spend eternity with me? What would you say to God? What would your answer be? What those two questions were getting at, what they were driving towards was the idea of confidence. Like, how confident are you in your relationship with God and where you stand with him? And what are you basing that confidence on is what the second question was getting at. So those are good questions. And listen, they're not just relevant to what happens after we die. They're actually relevant to our relationship with God right now. Like, how do you relate to God right now? Do we relate to God with confidence, with certainty, or do we always feel uncertain in where we stand with God? Like, if you lack confidence in your relationship with God, why is that? And conversely, if you, if you just feel super confident in where you stand with God, why is that? What are you basing your confidence or your lack of confidence on? This passage seems to be saying that we can have total confidence in our relationship with God, where we stand with him, but our confidence <clears throat> is not based on ourselves at all in what we do or don't do and who we are or who we aren't. According to this text, our confidence is based on Christ crucified, like, did you notice how many times the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, is mentioned in these few verses? Verse six, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse eight, Christ died for us. Verse nine, we have been justified by his blood. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You'd think Paul's trying to make a point here. Romans, this whole chapter five, this whole chapter is all about justification by faith. We'll introduce that last week. Justification by faith, meaning we have a new status, a new standing with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. We're justified, meaning we can be confident in where we stand with him. And that's really important because we actually grow spiritually out of that confidence. We don't grow spiritually out of insecurity or fear or pride. But today's passage is saying that our confidence actually has an objective basis. It's not subjective. It's not based on how we feel. It's not based on what we contribute. It's objective. It's based on what God has done <clears throat> through Jesus. The cross of Christ is what gives us confidence in our standing with God. That's the big idea I want you to leave with. The cross of Christ is what gives us confidence in our standing with God. First, it gives us confidence in God's love for us. 
it gives us confidence that God loves us. We see that in verses six <clears throat> through eight. How do you know God loves you? Like, how can you be sure? How do you know God doesn't hate you? <laughs> you ever thought about that? Or how do you know God's not just indifferent towards you, apathetic towards you? I think if you went out on the street and took a random survey and asked people to describe God, I'm guessing the first thing that most people would say about God is that he's loving. People would say, God loves us. They would say, some might even say, God is love. But where did that idea come from? Like, where did we get that idea? That, that the all-powerful, infinite God of the universe is actually loving in a personal way. How do we know that? Tim Keller, in his book on forgiveness, says we didn't just come up with that idea on our own. We didn't just come up with that by observing the world. He says you don't just look at current events in human history and, th and think to yourself, oh yeah, God is, of course, God is a God of love. Because you look at human history and people have been pretty brutal to one another, right? Even religious folks have been pretty brutal to one another. You don't look at nature <clears throat> and automatically draw the conclusion that God is loving because nature is also brutal, isn't it? It's survival of the fittest out there. There is no love between the coyotes that live out behind my house and the neighborhood cats, right? They don't love each other. We're missing cats all the time in our neighborhood. Nature is brutal and violent. You don't even necessarily get the idea that God is loving from reading other religious texts, texts of other religions. You might hear that God is good, God is powerful, God is just, God is exacting. You might even hear that God is distant, high above us. You might hear concepts like karma or retribution or wrath. But the idea that God is loving and personal would be strange to most religious thought in human history. Most people in human history understand that God is wrathful, but to say he's loving in a personal way just sounds weird. So the idea of, of a loving God actually comes from the Bible. That's where we get it. Jesus loves me, this I know, why? For the Bible tells me so. And, and what the Bible tells us is that God has given objective, historical proof that he loves us. And actually, there's no other way to be sure of it unless he gives us objective historical proof of his love. We see it there in verse eight. Look at verse eight. Romans five, verse eight. But God shows his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God demonstrates his love in a very tangible way. It'd be, it, more accurately, we could say he proves his love in a very tangible way. How? Christ died for us. Christ died on our behalf. Christ died in our place. Verses six through eight show us the profound nature of God's love. His love is unique. There's no other love like it anywhere in the world, anywhere in the universe. These verses show us the unique costliness of his love. The cost of his love is Christ. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave, and so God's love takes the form of a gift. 
and it's the most expensive gift ever given. It, it, the gift is his only son with whom the father had been in perfect fellowship for eternity. And I was thinking about that this week. I've known my children for 25 years, 22 years, and 17 years, respectively. And I can't imagine being pulled apart from them. I can't imagine that seeing them suffer. But God's son is infinite, which means the cost of his love is infinite. That makes his love unique. But these verses also show us how the, the recipients of God's love make it unique. See, it's not just the nature of the gift of his love that makes it unique, it's the description of the recipients of his love that makes it unique. See, human love could never accomplish what God's love accomplished. It would never do what God's love did. Uh, in fact, in verse seven, Paul gives a hypothetical example of what the pinnacle, what the height of human love would look like. Like, as good as it gets, the best human love could ever be. Look at verse seven. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Meaning almost no one is gonna lay down their life for someone else just because that other person is upright. Just because they're keeping all the rules and checking all the boxes, just because they're a respectable citizen, a righteous person. We're not dying for that person. But we might actually die for someone uh, who, who we knew personally with whom we had a strong emotional bond and we knew them to be a good person. He's a good man. She's a good person. We might lay down our life for a good person. If you've ever read A Tale of Two Cities, uh, you remember that Sidney Carton lays down his life for Charles Darnay. Sorry for the spoiler, but that's an old book. Sidney Carton lays down his life for Charles Darnay. He switches place with him in prison and he's executed in his place. Uh, but the reason that Sidney Carton does this is because Charles Darnay is a better man than him. And also it's because Sidney Carton loves Lucy who's now married to Darnay and he's always loved Lucy and he does it for her. But he also does it because Sidney Carton wants his mostly wasted life to somehow have higher purpose. And so he lays down his life for a good man, Charles Darnay. And that's the pinnacle of human love. But look who Christ died for. Look at verse six. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were weak when Christ died for us, meaning we were helpless. We couldn't do anything to make God love us. We couldn't do anything to contribute to our salvation. We were weak, but it was actually worse than that. Look at verse eight. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Christ died for us, we were actively disobeying God. We were falling short of his standards. We were rejecting his ways, rejecting his will. We weren't trying to be good. We weren't trying to be righteous. We were sinning when Christ died for us. But it actually gets worse than that. Look at verse 10. It says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were hostile towards God. We were against God. We resented God. We wanted out from under his rule. 
So I was an enemy of God. Even a nice guy like me. Enemy of God. That's who I was when Christ died for us. So Christ died for us while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were God's enemies, meaning we were not doing anything at all to deserve God's love. His love wasn't motivated by anything in us at all in any way. It was unmerited, undeserved. And that's actually good news. Because since God's love is unmerited and not dependent on us, it means it will never change. We couldn't earn it and we can't lose it, right? It will not wax, it will not wane, it will not go away. God's love for us is steadfast so we can have confidence in it. That's good news. I don't know what causes you to doubt God's love for you. All of us doubt it from time to time. Maybe it's your circumstances. You're like, if God loved me, he would not let me be going through this. If God loved me, he would not be withholding this good thing that I really want in my life. Maybe it's your own sin. You're like, man, I've really blown it this time or I've blown it too many times. There's no way God still loves me. God's patience with me has certainly run out and he's pulled back his love. But listen, none of those things are the basis of God's love for you. The cross is the basis of God's love. It's interesting. The main verb in verse eight is in the present tense. Look at it. He says, but God shows, God demonstrates, present tense, his love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Past tense. So even though the cross is in the past, God uses it to demonstrate his love for us in the present. He's doing it right now. He'll do it tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. The past work of Jesus on the cross is present proof that God loves us. Isn't that great? The past work of Jesus on the cross is present proof that God loves us. God, you can know that God loves you right now. The cross gives you confidence in his love. But secondly, the second thing the cross gives us confidence in is our salvation, our future salvation. Sometimes we might ask ourselves a question like this, can I lose my salvation? Like, can I blow it so badly that God's like, well, forget it then. (laughs) I'm taking that back. Or we might ask, can I really know for sure that I have salvation? Like, can, can can I be certain of my future with God? And Paul addresses these questions and these doubts here in verses nine and 10, I wanna look at verses nine and 10. Both verse nine and 10 uh, take the same form. They're both arguments from the greater to the lesser. You'll see that. Paul's logic in these verses is that since God has already done the difficult thing, then we can be confident that he's gonna do the relatively easier thing, right? God's already done the hard thing, so we can trust, we can be confident that he'll do the easy thing. Look at verse nine, verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, Jesus's blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. So we've already been justified by the blood of Jesus, meaning we talked about this last week, we've been acquitted 
of all charges, like we've been set free from the penalty of sin. The judge has declared us not guilty and he said, you're free to go. You're justified because Jesus paid the penalty, the debt for your sin. So if we've already been justified through the shed blood of Jesus, meaning we've already been acquitted of all charges, then how much more is Jesus gonna save us from the wrath of God in the future? Now, I know that we don't like to think about the wrath of God, right? That we like the loving God, not the wrathful God. We like the loving parts of God, don't we? But, but listen, if we don't acknowledge the wrath of God, then we're not actually talking about the real God because sometimes God's love is manifested in wrath. God is opposed to evil and sin. He hates it because evil and sin have destroyed his creation. They've destroyed, it's destroyed people. It's wreaked havoc in the world that he loves. And so God will judge sin and evil. At the end of history, there will be a day of judgment which Paul calls in Romans 2, verse five, the day of wrath. Romans 2, five, it's the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God will pour out his wrath on sin and evil and unrighteousness, meaning he's not indifferent to sin. Like he won't shrug it off. He won't sweep it under the rug. He'll be like, he's not like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. No big deal. He will judge it. And we want him to. We actually want him to. We want justice to prevail, don't we? We want wrongs to be made right. We want the guilty to be punished. But listen, we don't want the wrath of God poured out on us. I promise you, we don't want that. And the good news of this verse is that since we've been justified by our faith in Jesus' death on the cross, we can be assured that the wrath of God won't be poured out on us. If you think about it, the cross of Jesus is actually where the love of God and the wrath of God meet perfectly, right? And they work together to save us. Like Jesus' death on the cross proves God's love for us. We've already said that. But Jesus' death on the cross also satisfies God's wrath against sin because Jesus paid the death penalty that sin required. So if we've trusted in Jesus, we can no longer be condemned for sin. God would be unjust to punish us for sin that Jesus already paid for. So we're justified. What does that mean? That means our salvation is secure. We can have confidence in it. Look at verse 10. Same form, but a little bit different concept. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And so Paul introduces a new word here. It's the word reconciled. Justified was a legal term. Reconciled is a relational term. It's, it's a personal term. It's, a, it's warm and personal. Like if you're reconciled to someone, that means relationship has been restored. You're friends again, you're close. You can do life together. So if justification says, I forgive you, you may go. Reconciliation says, I love you. You may come. You have access to me. We're good. You're like family to me. This verse says that while we were God's enemies, he reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus. While we were his enemies. 
So how much more, now that we're reconciled, is he gonna complete our salvation through the life of Jesus? Meaning Jesus is alive right now. He's risen. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's advocating for us on our behalf. He's for us. He's alive and he's for us. So of course he's gonna save us. He's already done the hard part. Won't he do the easy part? Imagine a hypothetical and horrible situation. Imagine a 17-year-old kid gets drunk one night and imagine him getting behind the wheel of a car and running a red light and killing one of my children. Imagine my wife and I somehow over months and years finding a way to forgive this kid. But not only that, imagine that we establish a relationship with him. And imagine that this kid doesn't have a family because he's been in and out of foster care his whole life. And imagine that we don't only establish a relationship with him, but we adopt him into our family and we call him our son. How much more are we gonna pay for his college? (laughs) How much more are we gonna show up at his wedding? How much are we gonna make sure his needs are met? How much more are we gonna make him one of our heirs? We already did the hard part when we forgave him when we reconciled with him, when we made him our son, how much more? That's what verses nine and 10 are assuring us of. John Stott says that through the cross, the judge has pronounced us righteous, that's justification, and the father has welcomed us home. That's reconciliation, I love that. The judge has pronounced us righteous and the father has welcomed us home and those things are true And therefore, we can be sure of our salvation. We can be confident in it. The cross gives us confidence that God loves us, confidence that he will save us. And then lastly, lastly, though, I just want to mention in verse 11, the cross gives us confident joy. Confident joy. This should be our response to all this. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. It literally means we boast in him. We glory in him. We exult in him. We open our mouths and tell the world our joy. We've all had moments where the joy that's in us about something just wells up and it overflows in us. I had one of those moments last Saturday night in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You didn't think I was going to go to that game and not talk about it in a sermon, did you? When the, when the last seconds were ticking off the clock and, and it looked like Texas was going to beat Alabama, my friends and I were rejoicing. We were boasting, we were exulting, we were glorying in the moment, and the Alabama fans in front of us did not like that one bit, and they let us know it. They turned around and let us know it. And we, you know what we said? We were like, We gotta celebrate, (laughs) let us celebrate. And honestly, I've been rejoicing in that victory all week long. I've watched that game twice again. (laughs) My wife comes in, she's like, you're watching it again? And I'm like, yeah, I think there's a new angle that I caught. I'm reading all the stuff on the internet. But listen, that's temporary joy. That's tentative joy meaning it's on shaky ground, and any sports fan knows that. 
felt it last night. We struggled to beat Wyoming, all right? <laughs> it's tentative joy. What this passage is saying is we can have confident, unshakable joy because our joy is in God himself. He's the prize of the gospel. It's not just that we get justification and reconciliation and salvation and all the benefits of salvation. We actually get God himself. So we rejoice in him with confident, unshakable joy. We rejoice in his mercy and grace that he would take his enemies and make them his friends, his children. We rejoice in his power to, to, to take sinners and make them saints. We rejoice that the God of the universe would not just give himself for us, he would give himself to us. Hallelujah. He's our joy. We ought to be the most joyful people on earth. We really ought to be. If I'm honest though, a lot of times I'm not. Sometimes I'm pretty joyless. I can be mopey and negative and angsty and angry. And when I'm like that, it's usually because I'm focused on my circumstances. It's usually because I'm looking to the things of the world to satisfy me and bring me joy. And that is shaky ground. It really is. But when I lift my eyes to the God who, who is and what he's done for us in Christ, then the only fitting response is confident joy. Not confidence in myself, not confidence in my circumstances, not confidence in my possessions, confidence in God. And all this is through Jesus Christ. Did you catch that in verse 11? All of it. Verse 11, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So our standing with God, our being reconciled to God only comes to us through what Jesus has done. We didn't earn our standing with God. It's something we receive. It says that we've received reconciliation. Reconciliation is a gift and it's a gift for guilty people. It's not a, re a reward for righteous people. It's a gift for the guilty. That means anyone can receive this gift and it's a gift that's received by faith and faith is just simple trust in Jesus. And all that means is saying to Jesus, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for being risen again so that I can have new life in you. I put my trust in you, Jesus, not in myself. You are my confidence not myself in my own efforts. You are my joy. That's faith. That's trust in Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.